0: Welcome to Financial Modeler's Corner, where we discuss the art and science of financial modeling with your host, Paul Barnhurst. Financial Modeler's Corner is sponsored by Financial Modeling Institute. Welcome to Financial Modeler's Corner. I am your host, Paul Barnhurst. This is a brand new podcast where we will talk all about the art and science of financial modeling with distinguished financial modelers from around the globe. The Financial Modelers Corner podcast is brought to you by Financial Modeling Institute. FMI offers the most respected accreditations in financial modeling. I'm super excited today to welcome our guest on the show. Brian Eager, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Paul. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you as well. Really excited to have you here. So this is a question we like to start off with, kind of have a little bit of fun, but I think it also makes a real serious point. Tell me about the worst financial model you've had to work with or you've seen in your career.
1: Yeah, I I have to generalize maybe anecdotally looking across models that did not work maybe the way they should have, I would say it's it's really challenging to make use of a model either where there's no kind of formulae connection between the income statement balance sheet and the cash flow statement. In other words, you lose that interconnectedness. Or when you kind of begin with your conclusion, so to speak. You, you begin with net income and you kind of reverse engineer and work your way backwards to what revenue should be. So these things tend to work a lot better, obviously, when the various statements sort of speak to each other, are connected, and when they're kind of bottom-up as opposed to top-down. So those would be observations across models I've seen that really are doing what I think we would hope they would do. Yeah. So it sounds like kind of a disconnect in the three
0: statements for whatever reason. They're just, they're not connected properly. Balance sheet doesn't balance. They didn't do a cash flow, whatever it might be. And the second one there, if I heard you right, was really around, they've already had the conclusion in mind. So now let's engineer it to get to that conclusion.
1: Yeah. Uh, Ideally, you'd like to arrive at that conclusion through series of logical inferences. That's the way it should work. Totally agree with you. And I've seen that.
0: I've worked on some deals where it's like, oh, wait, you know, just put more revenue in there. Just assume this will be a three, three months later because we have to hit this number for it to make sense. And it's like, well, but we're not really hitting that number because we know that won't happen. We've all been there where it's like, well, just plug the number. Never ends well. <laughs> so what are the key takeaways from you know seeing those type of models? What's the learning that people should take away from that?
1: I think my overall takeaway, and it's probably applicable to a lot of different aspects of modeling is models should ideally have an internal logic and consistency to them. And that there really should be connections across financial statements that models should be dynamic and not static, that they should be integrated and not sort of siloed pieces not speaking to each other.
0: Make makes sense. I get that dynamic, integrated, not siloed, those are all good points. Now, can you just take a minute and tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? You know, kind of how you ended up where you're at today in your career and what you're doing.
1: Uh, uh, sure. So I studied business as a student. I went to uh, Wharton School undergrad and got my MBA at the University of Chicago uh, Booth School. I've really been publishing models professionally, writing investment research since the '90s on um, the so-called sell side as a brokerage analyst. And my industry focus has always been broadly centered around what I call the consumer. Gaming, lodging, leisure. So, I've always had this sort of industry specialization, but I've also worked in player coach roles, whether it's being a, a research director or team leader, or in my current role, head of financial modeling. And outside the realm of actually being a practitioner, I've had some experience teaching. I taught as an adjunct uh, professor of finance at Columbia Business School. I've done various types of training uh, in research management. So, I've had a fairly broad set of experiences, lucky to have them across my career.
0: No, it sounds like a lot of really good experiences there. And I'm curious, what's uh, kept you in the kind of the gaming hospitality that that area of the industry? What is it you like about that?
1: Um, I think you know once you develop uh, a specialization, you you find that as industries go through these long sort of arcs and changes, there's actually always something new to bring to your analysis. It is kind of a nice thing to be able to balance having that long perspective, but always for the sake of one's own professional stimulation always encountering something new you know for example sports betting a relatively new phenomenon really wasn't pertinent to my job until five years ago so
0: yeah i think that coincided with wasn't there a change in a court ruling that allowed the nationwide sports betting and now yeah i remember that you see the i hear the ads all the time now of the different betting services so I know you're currently the global head of financial modeling at Bloomberg. So what does that entail? What, what does
1: that role involve? So I think beyond the you know, the sort of operational administrative aspects of being a manager at a place like Bloomberg, you know, I think what I've tried to do is provide sort of an analyst or a user's perspective on the structure, the format, the function of this inter- interactive modeling tool that we have. So in that sense, I focus on use cases, standards, best practices. Uh, like any complex project at a large organization, we've got product people, we've got marketing people, we've got data people, analytics people, and you know, I come from the perspective of having been a long-time user and builder of models, and so I come to it as sort of like the first pass of what a user w- would want from it and also how they would react to it in terms of the conclusions they draw. So now this
0: is the Bloomberg Interactive Calculator, right? Is that what you're referring to here? Or is this a different tool? Yeah,
1: one break of interactive calculator, exactly. Okay, great.
0: And we'll get into a little more depth in that here in a few, few minutes on that. Next question I just kind of want to ask you, talk about models. You know, you've built a lot. You've been involved in the, the calculator there. And how do you find the right balance? I think something everybody struggles with is, hey, keep the model simple. But yeah,
1: everybody keeps asking you to add more and more stuff to it. Yeah, no, that's a good, really good point. I mean, I think sometimes you can tell better whether it's too simple or too complex by what it, it's not doing for you than what, than what it is doing for you. Because I think it's arguably too, too simple if, if it can't provide insight into very basic questions or it can't adapt to new information. It's not adapting to your needs as a user. But I think you could say if you add too much onto it, as you mentioned, it may become too complex in the sense that it takes too long or is too cumbersome to maintain or update and in that case you know the value of a model as, the, as a decision making tool really begins to diminish because that I think you have to remind yourself when you're building some model the temptation is to want to add to it and make it reflect the best of your thinking but you always have to revert back to will this assist me in making informed decisions whether your role is that of a uh, of a uh, Corporate finance analyst, or an investment analyst, or financial planning and analysis type of professional, you really have to think about whether or not it can assist you in the decision making you need to do, or the type of decision making that you're enabling the model to help other people, your clients. I really like how you focused on:
0: is it helping you know the client, or you, or whoever that may be, the user of the model, make good decisions? Is it aiding in this decision making process? Because if it's not, you know, maybe it's too simple. Maybe it's too precise in that it's just, it's overly complex and they can't figure it out. It's usually, right. It's going to be one of the two, typically, obviously sometimes bad assumptions play into that as well. But, you know, what, what are some of the signs to you that a model has become too detailed? Because I've definitely seen some where, you know, it's just overkill, right? You hit that point where it's like, how do you maintain this model kind of fails under its own weight, so to speak.
1: Two things come to mind. One is that it takes a very long time to answer a simple question, or it takes a very long time to simply update. You know, there's always a maintenance element to having any model. You've built it, and now you have to adapt it either to new information, company re- resegmentations or restatements, or you know, a you want to test the sensitivity of your model to different scenarios and assumption changes, and you've Provided yourself with levers to push, so to speak, to test those sensitivities. But if you provide yourself with too many levers to push, it can become fairly cumbersome and and you can very easily get lost in in the tree, so to speak, and lose lose the sense of what the forest is. So if, if you make it too detailed, you make it too detailed for you to usefully update and maintain, that could be a challenge. I think also, you know, what we've tried to do here certainly is try to make sure you're not devoting too much detail to those aspects of a model for which you're not likely to get that much additional precise conclusive power out of adding that much more detail and save that granularity for something where maybe you can bring some insight into it you know because there may be things that you can model at extreme detail but not necessarily be bringing any particular unique insight as a modeler
0: yeah if you're modeling out you know every trip for travel and you're talking a large global company probably not adding much value even if it's highly accurate
1: Yep. Or even there are certain aspects of uh, of financial statements for which we've taken maybe more of an abbreviated approach. You know, because our analysts are fundamental industry analysts, they have great insight into industry trends, growth rates, shipping volumes, average selling prices. And we certainly try to create a tool that gives people a lot of flexibility to really flex their intellectual muscle on those fronts in particular.
0: Yeah. And when you said too complex, it reminded me of a story I had someone on other podcast to do called fp a Today, and this was a budgeting and forecasting model. And he goes, I still have night sweats about it because he was telling me it was each model was hundred and sixty, 150-something worksheets. And he had four of them that he had to update because there were four different legal entities. So it was like, when I did a budget or a forecast, I had 600 worksheets. I mean, you can't manage that. You know how many errors there probably was in that thing? That's the example to me of the extreme where it's like, all right, you're trying to do too much in one file if you got 600 different tabs to work with. You know, on the other side, you sometimes see people take you know, very simple and back of the envelope is great as a start. But what are some signs or how should I think about it if Maybe the model is just, you know, too simple to make good decisions. It's not going to drive that value.
1: Yeah, well, I'd say aside from the kind of financial statement interconnectedness issues we talked about before, that being lacking would be a major evidence that maybe it's too simple and not really functioning right. You know, another thing is, have you provided the user with enough tools to approach modeling the way they would on their own? I mean, because we're developing a tool very often for a third party user. And, and I've been a modeler sort of on my own in various ways and sort of self styled. But as an analyst, I know that if I change, for a company that makes widgets of some type, let's say, you've got a certain volume shipment number, you've got a volume number, and you've got a price number, average selling price. And it's great to have the ability to change those assumptions. But I also know as an analyst that depending on the company's fixed costs and the degree of operating leverage, I'm probably going to want to change some cost assumptions or margin assumptions as well. And so you know, a real sign that it may be too simple is that you haven't given the user the tools to change those other variables. In other words, if it's, if it's too simple and too unidimensional, you may be denying the user the opportunity to look at all the knock-on effects. You know, If I change volume shipments, yes, it obviously has implications for revenue, but depending on the cost structure of the business, it has implications for margins and cost absorption. And if you're not getting below the top line and, and giving equal devotion of time to creating a modeling structure for cost assumptions, for example then you're limiting the utility of that model for yourself or another user.
0: I really like something you said there. And the way I thought of it is when you mentioned revenue, right? If you don't have the, the flow-throughs, kind of those key drivers and how they interact, one, you're going to limit the ability to make changes to it and the accuracy of it for changes you make. Because, I mean, the reality is whether you, t- you touch revenue, you touch cost of goods sold, you touch, you know, certain opex. There's a number of other things that should
1: adjust in a model. I think so. And I think, you know, a model is meant to replicate, can describe it different ways, but it's, you know, what's the company's value creation process that you're analyzing. And, um, you know, a company creates value not only by making product and selling them at an optimal price, but also by managing their costs and gaining efficiencies and managing their capital deployment. If, you're, if you don't get some insight into that corporate value creation process, then the model is simply going to be less useful.
0: Yep, I think that's a really good point. And I really like I talked about the value creation. That's what it comes back to as we're trying to understand what's the value that's going to be created from whatever we're modeling. You know, in the future, from this project, from the company, whatever it might be, we want to understand value. In today's business world, financial modeling skills are more important than ever. With Financial Modeling Institute's Advanced Financial Modeler Accreditation Program, you can become recognized as an expert in the field by validating your financial modeling skills. Join the Financial Modeling Institute's community of top financial modelers, gain access to extensive learning resources, and attain the prestigious Advanced Financial Modeler Accreditation. Visit www.fminstitute.com backslash podcast and use code podcast to save 15% when you register. Shifting back to something you mentioned earlier, you know, you talked about you're the head of modeling there. I know you're involved, you've you been involved in the development of the Bloomberg Interactive Calculator. So first, can you tell our audience
1: kind of what that is and what it's used for? Sure. So the Bloomberg Interactive Calculator is a, uh, kind of a template, a modeling product we created. It's available right now for about 1,600 companies. It aligns very much with Bloomberg Intelligence's coverage of companies. But really what it is meant to do is it is creates a kind of a modeling platform a default modeling platform based on consensus assumptions. In other words, based on broker estimates, not only for high level things like revenue, but on a very granular level for deep estimates for things like all the things we talked about, product shipments and selling price and and costs and margins. And because we have data that we've had available that kind of tracks consensus, there's the Bloomberg consensus on a very deep granular level, we found a way to basically use those consensus assumptions based on broker estimates to populate a bottom-up model that takes those deep estimates and kind of feeds up to basically create a full integrated model which you then can compare to a variety of benchmarks, including the kind of high-level consensus. So it's a consensus-populated modeling tool based in Excel. That's essentially what it is, and it's available on the Bloomberg terminal to our, to our clients.
0: Cool. Thank you. I appreciate that uh, explanation. What were maybe some of the key learnings you had from being on that project? Because I imagine that took a while to figure out how to automate and how to get the consensus together and agree on what that would look like for all these companies where you could get it in a standardized process.
1: Sure. So, you know, it, it's what I described as the potential to be a you know kind of a complex project. Having the resources we have at Bloomberg is great, but it only means something if you have a collaborative approach. So really one thing I've learned is that the effectiveness in building a model and more of like a enterprise or corporate environment, which which I do, really hinges on the extent of cooperation and the work relationship uh, among people like myself who have kind of a traditional financial modeling approach and perspective, but also people that are really skilled and capable in data and analytics, capable in um, product management, and we're, we're essentially a financial technology firm, and so there's we have some really great product people. And also, you know, how to kind of market and position it. So you really do need a wide range of capabilities, much wider than I could have or any analyst could have on their own. Developing this type of thing requires a lot of collaboration.
0: I could imagine a lot of cross-collaboration, a lot of people involved. Is there maybe one like key takeaway from all that? If you would say, if you kind of had to sum it up, is it a collaboration on any big project? Or what's kind of the one kind of key takeaway from that one?
1: I think it's that. And it's also that you come to the realization that no one professional has the skill set singularly that you need to get the whole thing done. And so we've got people with kind of programming and more quantitative language capabilities. We've got people with really know kind of the ecosystem of how our firm does things. And then we have people that have kind of been out there on the outside as a user. You know, I think really key thing I take away is that you have to bring your skills to bear, but whether you're working on a model collaborative with with colleagues or or developing a product or simply using a model on your own, having some way to not only share your insights, but share your skill sets is really critical.
0: Yeah. I really like how you said that of sharing skill sets, because you think of M&A transaction, any big model you're doing in just the workplace, a budget you're building... You need a bunch of people. It's not just the person who may have the knowledge to build the model. There's others involved in the project, very much like what you were doing there. And to be successful, you need to learn how to tap into those and make sure you're getting the best out of everybody.
1: Yeah. And I think also, again, you know, when you're a securities analyst that's industry or sector specialized like I've been, you know, a lot of your knowledge and skill and expertise is knowing a lot about that industry. You know, you're a fundamental analyst. And so yes, you're hopefully good at financial analysis and modeling and understand accounting, but you know, you're using that with the purpose of applying that to understanding how companies in a particular industry allocate capital and make decisions and create value. And so that requires just a lot of Industry knowledge, and you only get that by following companies in an industry over many quarters, over many seasons and years. That's a time consuming learning process, and it's entirely parallel to, but different from, the process of actual model building per se. Sure. Yeah.
0: Learning a business deeply, understanding it, understanding the trends is different from building the model obviously does it help you build the model is it important you know as i always like to say one of the best things you can do especially you know in corporate finance where you're working for one company all the time is learn the business learn the company if you're covering one industry i would imagine learning that industry has helped you as much if not more than knowing how to model
1: yeah and you get the pattern recognition as a modeller from not only having seen this model before but i've seen this business industry i've seen it evolve i know what sort of seen this play before. <laughs> that kind of mindset applies both to, I've seen this model before, I've encountered this modeling problem before, but also as a fundamental analyst of industries and companies, I've seen these types of issues taken on by managements before. You know.
0: Yeah. I, I'm sure over the years, you've seen some repeats too, like, oh, here we go again, probably with some companies and things.
1: Yeah. And I think a sense of what can and can't work is also, you know, you, you can do a model with a lot of assumptions. But if you're an analyst, do what I do, you also have the sense of whether or not, what you've put on, together in a spreadsheet, whether or not that's something that the company can execute on. That requires a bit of a more qualitative sense of how businesses work and how talented management teams are.
0: Makes sense. Thank you for sharing that. You recently did a webinar with the uh, Financial Modeling Institute and you talked about four guidelines to help balance what we talked about earlier right complexity versus simplicity so could you talk a little bit about those guidelines with us
1: sure well I mean, and this will probably echo a few things i said earlier in this discussion but you know i think um it goes back to the question of how much detail. I I like to always start to, at least when I create a model, replicate the amount of detail that the company itself provides in its own disclosure. And if you can go deeper, which maybe you can, you want to use certain metrics that the company doesn't disclose, it can be a really creative process. But your starting point, you at least have to be able to replicate the level of the company's own disclosure, because if you can't, then it can't really respond to new information. The way we approach modeling, because it it has some consensus basis to it, is we have the ability to create a lot of these sort of fundamental drivers based on these consensus inputs. The way to preserve the type of linkages among financial statements I talked about earlier, you really have to have a very basic sense of like the the formulas. Like You can have all the drivers and consensus-based inputs you have, but if a company is is increasing its capital spending, or you assume it is, there should be a knock-on effect in terms of the what's the impact on property, plant, and equipment? And so the only way you, you get that internal connectedness is if you have the right types of formulaic connections you know, between parts of the financial statement. So you really have to have kind of a combination of what I would call drivers and basic formulas, formulaic connections. I think also, um, as you develop a model, you know, I've built on most of my models as a modeling practitioner, it's useful to be able to benchmark yourself against, I mean, what is that forecast that you've come up with compare to, and we may rely a lot on consensus kind of brokerage community estimates. But you know, there, are, you know, there always are ways to rethink. What are you using either to compare your forecast against, or to populate your assumptions? If I decide, rather than using my own assumption about revenue growth or prices for a particular commodity, instead of using my own assumption, maybe I want to inform that assumption with a like a an industry forecast. So, you know, there's always a way to rethink whose perspective you put in the driver's seat of the model, so to speak. Do you want it to be your individual assumptions, or do you want them to reflect some type of third party review or some type of composite or consensus? And so it's always useful to challenge yourself by reframing who. The modeler's insight is coming from. That could be either you working alone and simply testing different scenarios and assumptions. How about trying this? Trying, that, trying different sensitivities, or trying the more bear case, or maybe trying to inform your model with some insights from some other sources that might not be your own. Thank you. I
0: appreciate that, and I really like how you said, especially as an analyst, right? The baseline you got to start with is. You need to be able to at least model what they have in their financial statements. And th- that makes sense, right? Is, uh, you know, if I'm doing, which you know, corporate finance, I need to be able to at least model the basis of the company at the level that they need me to plan. And so there's, th- there's a baseline you start from, and then it's layering on from there as appropriate. What, what do you layer on that's going to help you make better decisions, help better inform your end user? I like the way you kind of shared that there. And so I know you did that for Financial Modeling Institute. And so I just want to ask you, you obviously, you're involved with Financial Modeling Institute. I know, you know, in the executive director there, kind of what are your thoughts of what they're doing there, having that formal modeling accreditation, you know, to help the industry validate their modeling skills?
1: Yeah, you know, look, I think it's a great way to invest in yourself and get that kind of uh, accreditation. I think aside from the fact that they have built a really interesting organization, I think more generally, you know, this goes back to the bigger picture of uh, the importance of just continuously reinvesting yourself, and they provide a great way to do it. You know, but I think other people will take approaches of being very focused in their academic studies and trying to gain specialization that way. Some may pursue you know, the Chartered financial analyst exam, or there may be supplemental courses you can take or you know, on the job. Types of experiences you can have, um, and I, I think that there's a lot of merit just to continuously reinvesting in both your skill set and your credentials, and that it's really important to never stop doing that. You know, the FMI has created a really intriguing platform as a way to as a way to do that. I'm a big advocate, having you know also taught at the the, the graduate business school level of the challenges of uh, being on both the uh, the teaching and student side of of Credential granting and, and and gaining, you know, I think it's great to both accumulate skills and and credentials because it just makes you stronger and also constantly gets you to challenge your own thinking. And there's kind of a nice, even having done some teaching at the university level, kind of a nice symbiosis between being a practitioner, taking a step back, and trying to teach it. And as you begin to teach things or you're exposed to teaching, you frame it and structure it in a different way.
0: I would agree. I think it's great to reinvest in your own skill set, and I like how you said you learn to frame things different when you have to teach it. Because you know, I do a lot of corporate training now, and started doing more of that in my business. And there's definitely times you're like, "All right, I didn't train or teach that very well. How do I rethink
1: that? Like, I know the concept, but
0: how do I make sure others understand it?"
1: Yeah, and I think even separate from the value of like any credential that we've talked about, there's just a value um, in achievement, actually going through the process and actually achieving a goal. Uh, And, and, you know, I think this is a professional. It's always impressive when someone can, particularly likely taking a time away from their their day job, so to speak, have the ability and the potential and the devotion to really invest in something that is, in many cases, going to be time-consuming, but really kind of helps crystallize and and further your skill set.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, investing in yourself is always a payoff and that can be done many different ways. I'm actually, I was originally scheduled to take the FMI a few years ago, then COVID hit and I started, then started my own business and some other things. And so now I'm hoping to finish it at, by the end of the year is my goal right now.
1: Yeah, it's a great set of accomplishments to do that. And they've created a very, very interesting platform as a way to do that. Yeah, they have.
0: And I've done some of their fundamentals, you know, and I spent a little time preparing for it. And I think it's a great program they have. And I think there's a lot of great ones out there, like, you know, the CFA. And I think it was exciting to see the changes they made where they've added some modeling and Python and some practical to the theoretical side of that.
1: And, you know, we've seen even the world of training accreditation, their financial modeling institute is an example of ways to really hone in on a sort of skill set that's part of a larger constellation of skills. You know, so the CFA exam prepares you in many ways to be a capable securities analyst. Modeling is one important skill there, but then there are people that decide to pursue accreditation because they want expertise as a, you know, a market technician or or have some other alternative asset management. As you get deeper into um, a practice or a, a field of study, you realize there are areas of specialization that you can never really get enough of to further your skill level.
0: Agree. There's definitely, there's more out there to learn than we'll ever learn. That is for sure. You know, next question here, just want to ask you a little bit, kind of going back to the gaming lodging industry. Obviously, you've covered that for many years now, a couple decades, you know, Bloomberg and over your career, just talk a little bit about what you've seen in the industry, maybe some changes, any, any insight or trends that you could share.
1: I mean, I think, you know, the broadest trend, because it's applicable to, I've covered hotels and casinos and cruise lines, the broadest trend is one of consolidation. If you follow an industry long enough, particularly from an earlier stage in its life cycle to a later stage, you eventually see the type of curve of growth and development and eventually consolidation. And so, you know, we we saw that over time um, just because I cover fewer companies now than I used to because many of them have merged or or combined, that it's a phenomenon that's been true across hotels, casinos. It certainly potentially comes, it certainly happened to some degree in the online betting industry. You know, it's certainly. it seems to be a pervasive trend that businesses grow, um, they pursue returns, and over time, the business in some way consolidates and harvests, harvests cash, and rationalizes in some way. And I think that sort of tends to be the broad pattern of, of an industry's economic life if you track it from earlier stages to the more mature stages.
0: I 100% agree with you. I'm following an industry now that has gone through an explosion in you know, one of the soft software tools industries and. It you're seeing a ton of tools just popping up left and right. And I, I've been saying for a while now it's just a matter of time until we start seeing some consolidation. Because you can only have so many in an industry, because just the economies of scale, wanting everybody wanting an above average return, which you know, everything tends toward an average return over time. And so you try different things, and one of them is consolidation and mergers and acquisitions and that whole game. So that doesn't surprise me. It makes a lot of sense. I think you see that in a lot of industries right? As you mentioned, if you watch it over time, there's usually a similar playbook across industries.
1: Yeah. Um, Industry kind of starts off a bit more fragmented and it rationalizes and consolidates and economic forces underlying it tend to result in very often bigger players getting even bigger and and other types of corporate participants making different types of capital allocation decisions. So So next we have the section, this is my favorite section, we
0: call it the rapid fire questions. So I have a a host of questions going to ask you here. I think I have seven in total. You get 10 seconds to answer. You can't say it depends. So you got to give a kind of a yes or no, one side or the other. And then at the end, you can pick whichever one you want to elaborate about. I've had a few people that they're like, can I say it depends? And I'm like, nope, you got to pick one. And then you can explain at the end. So we'll get started here. And these are all kind of related to modeling. So circular or no circular references in a model? Uh, no, No circle references. All right. Do you prefer a horizontal layout, you know, so basically many sheets, or more of a vertical layout where you kind of put it all, you know, all on one sheet or on a couple sheets?
1: Yeah, I'm going to say horizontal, with probably a preference to elaborate in, in the after session. But I start off by saying horizontal. All
0: right, and we'll give you the opportunity to elaborate on that one. Uh, named ranges versus no named ranges in models. Name ranges, absolutely, particularly if it helps. Do you follow a formal standards board for your modeling, like FAST or SMART or some of these others out
1: there? Yes or no? No, although I would qualify by saying we've tried to create some of our own standards and practices, but to your specific question, no. Okay. So you have some, yeah, and that,
0: that makes sense. I'm sure you have some own, some own standards that you use at the company. Next question is, will Excel ever die? Yes or no?
1: I would say... No, for the simple reason that
0: I haven't come across anything yet to replace it. <laughs> yep. You're, you're, yeah, I think you're not alone in that. Most people tend toward the no. We've got a few yeses, but will AI ever
1: build the models for us? Yes, again, with an asterisk, it will never replace the model's insight, but it will definitely become a tool.
0: I would agree with that. That's kind of my thinking as well. And then the last one, and you get four choices here. As some people like to point out, there's more than four. So if you want to choose a different one, I'll let you. But what is your lookup function of choice? Do you like choose VLOOKUP, index match, XLOOKUP? I would say index match, but that's partly because that's what
1: we've, I've had experience with. Makes sense. So which one did you want to elaborate on there? So I think in terms of the horizontal versus vertical model, my answer is probably a little bit of a hybrid. I, I like the idea of having. Uh, and we've, we've got it's having different tabs, at very least a tab that breaks out kind of the key performance indicators and kind of the segment mechanics in one tab and the more traditional financial statements in another tab. And then maybe there's another tab for things like valuation, or um, we also have a tab for kind of like a cover page. So just organizationally and based on how we use these pages, uh, I like the horizontal approach. However, with having said that, within that, you know when we have like a financials tab we have collapsed into that an income statement a balance sheet and a cash flow statement which is sort of vertically stacking them the tradition you know the conventional financial statements but what goes into the modeling process does go beyond this those those three statements or financials may have two statements right so we have kind of dedicated tabs horizontally for things like segment KPI analysis or you know other types of more summary type of views makes sense and you know in my career
0: I've mostly been horizontal and part of that I've worked big global companies corporate FP&A where when I'm working at American Express you're typically not doing a three statement you're doing the P&L you might be doing some capex stuff there might be some metrics right so that's been most of my my career, I didn't do an integrated three statement for work till a year and a half ago. You know, and so very different. And so horizontal is very common there because you're often had 50 cost centers that you were forecasting. And so you'd put one of them on each sheet because it was too painful to kind of ha- have that vertically. But then once I started to do stuff that was three statement, I'm like, that's kind of nice. I can see where laying out all three statements on one sheet makes sense. So I've kind of come to where I could see both, and often it's a little bit of
1: a hybrid. So it's interesting to see. Since I'm a securities analyst, not an FPI, FPA kind of professional, you know, we use external or external users of financial statements, right? So we, we use company disclosures and, and filings as our starting point, right? So I think it'd be a different approach if we were working internally with financial planning analysis, but because we're external users, we naturally start with the prepared financial statements and then we infuse that with as much of our thinking as we can. Totally
0: makes sense. I, I get that. So it's you know, a little bit different depending on what you're doing. So as we wrap up here, just have two questions left for you. So the first is, if you could give our audience one piece of advice that you've learned over your career that would help them be a more successful modeler, what would that advice be?
1: Probably just to adhere to a couple of basic uh, tenets or priorities. One is never lose your attention to detail because as uh, you tend to get more senior, you tend to be a higher level decision maker, try never to lose that sense of what's in the weeds, so to speak. And the second thing would be never lose your sense of intellectual curiosity, you know, because it's that constantly asking why I think that makes you a better thinker and ultimately a better modeler.
0: I'll, I'll say those two just to summarize the intellectual curiosity, always be willing to ask why. And the second is be willing To understand the details and get in there. There'll be times when you need it. Got it. So last question, if our audience wants to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that?
1: Probably the best way is is LinkedIn.
0: Okay. And we'll put that in the show notes for people and just want to close by saying thank you for joining me. I enjoyed chatting with you today and it's been a real pleasure. So thank you for being on the show, Brian. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining me for that episode with Brian. There are a couple things I'd like to highlight as I've had a chance to re-listen to the episode and think about it. The first is how we talked about finding the right balance in your model. So the key takeaway for me was, does it aid in the decision-making process? If the answer is no, then you can probably leave it out of your model or make a very general assumption. So I think the first thing to always ask yourself when you're trying to find that right balance between complexity and simplicity is to always focus on, does it aid in the decision-making process? To elaborate a little further, he emphasized four points in finding that balance between complexity and simplicity. He wrote an article about it on LinkedIn that we've included in the show notes. So the first one was, models should be detailed enough to replicate company disclosures. Obviously, this is going to apply when you're modeling public companies. There are other cases where you may not have that. But at a minimum, if you are modeling a public company, you should have that level of detail. Next, I really love this. Effective models rely on both drivers and formulas. There's places where you may have a driver, a key assumption. There's other places where things may adjust based on formulas. and You need to find that right balance and rely on both of them. The next one he listed is effective modeling requires a balance between granularity and simplicity. The example he gives is you may go really detailed on revenue and you know certain expenses, but you'll go a lot less detailed on the model for you know, the immaterial non-operating lines, which you have limited insight on to begin with. So we talked about how that might be an area where you might want to keep it really simple, but you may want to go really granular on revenue. And then the fourth area he mentions is data and analytical tools enable users to reframe who is the modeler. And he gives the example of using industry data, using crowdsourced inputs. So you don't need to make all the assumptions yourself. You have the opportunity to look beyond consensus and incorporate, you know, industry data in your forecasts or, you know, other people's opinions. So I really like that. And I think it's so important as modelers that we find that right balance. I've always been guilty on erring on the side of too complex. And the older you get, the more I do this, the more I'm trying to find ways to keep it simple, to really step back and think, how do I make this really simple? So my view is err on the side of simplicity if you have to choose, but always keep in mind, is it aiding the decision-making process? And then the last thing I want to mention from the episode is just the advice he gave for modelers. He gave two pieces of advice, and I think they're really solid. Never lose attention to detail. Always check and recheck your work. Just don't get sloppy as you get older. Don't get lazy. Make sure you take care of the details. And the next, which was my favorite of the two is never lose your sense of intellectual curiosity. Always be learning, always be growing. Always be challenging yourself. So that's kind of my summary on a few of my favorite parts from that episode. You know, Let me know in the comments or reach out to me and email me what your favorites were. We'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'm going to ask that you please share the podcast with your friends, subscribe on your platform of choice, and leave a review and a rating. If you could give us a rating, that'd be great. It helps us produce this content. It's a lot of work to do that. So please take that time. Thanks again for joining us for this episode. Financial Modeler's Corner was brought to you by Financial Modeling Institute. Visit FMI at www.fminstitute.com podcast and use code podcast to save 15% when you enroll in one of their accreditations today.